Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. I don't know how many of you know this, but I have a big passion for coffee and I also love learning about things and really learning exactly um, how they are produced and how they come to be. So when I met George Howell on a flight from Amsterdam to Boston many, many years ago, I was intrigued and we had a great conversation about the coffee industry because George is actually one of the pioneers of the coffee industry. In fact, George is one of the people who's really helped grow fair trade in coffee. Um, He's created a coffee competition. He's very passionate about working with the farmers and not only helping them assure good crops, but really getting exactly what they deserve for their crops. One other super interesting fact about George is he had a coffee chain in the Boston area many years ago as Starbucks was expanding from the west to the east coast. And George was very involved in that expansion because he actually sold his chain to Starbucks as they were expanding. And he helped Starbucks uh, really enter deeply into the onto the east coast, specifically in the Boston area. I think you're going to really enjoy today's episode of The Business of You. You'll get a lot of the behind the scenes of the coffee industry and how it came to be today. Enjoy getting to know George Howell as I turn the mic over to him. Today I have on the business of you, an old friend and a coffee mentor, George Howell. George, welcome to the show. How are you today? Well, thank you. (laughs) Good to talk to you again. Yes. So uh, just for context for our audience, we met on a flight many, many years ago, right? We were coming home from Amsterdam, Uh, I think, to Boston. That was when I was living in Boston. So it was about 20 some years ago. Right. And um, we struck up Convo and you shared your passion of coffee with me and the industry that you were in. And um, I also remember you invited me to your home to and taught me how to do a cupping and taste uh, a okay. bunch of varieties. Yeah. So really interesting. I love coffee, as you know, but enough about, about us and how we started off. If, can you share your story in terms of um, how you got into the coffee industry to begin with? And you've had some fascinating ups and downs in your life. And even at the very beginning, it sounded like you didn't really know what you wanted to do with your life. So if you could start with uh, where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, uh, born in New York City. Uh, I was in New Jersey, uh, very close to New York City on the eastern side uh, until I was 13. My father was quite sick at that time, and uh, he retired, and we we went to Mexico. Mm. 
to live there. Uh, so I remember driving uh, from uh, from New Jersey just with him and our dog. My my mother and the rest of the family flew to uh, to Mexico, um, all the way down to the south and then through the south, which was that was before segregation was wiped out. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that was a shocker. Going mm-hmm. through an mm-hmm. entirely what seemed to me like an entirely different country. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. one that I was used to. And then down through Mexico. And that was all very exciting. Um, and um, so I got private tutoring for a while until they finally established themselves uh, in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to a British school for several years, Green Gates, which only went to something like uh, junior high and ended there. Um, and uh, then my mother, who's Polish uh, and was, you know, a refugee from World War II, basically, um, and had traveled through France and lived there for a while before the Nazis took that, um, put me in a French school. In Mexico? In Mexico. Huh. Right? So in- I had a year of tutoring in French while learning Spanish <laughs> and then went into the last three grades of the Lycée Franco-Mexicain there, right? Uh, and passed the, uh, the French baccalaureate, right? So coffee was still not a thing, right? I mean, I had been exposed to it and such, but it really wasn't on my mind, except maybe culturally because as you may know, you know, the French are really big time into the coffee house as yes. a cultural center. Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, lived practically in a cafe, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was on my mind, that kind, that piece. And but what now, year was this about? This was the uh, early 60s, 61 okay. to 63 in there. Okay. Right? Uh, and then I went to... Uh, uh, to Yale, um, and uh, I spent three, uh, really going on my third year there, I left. Um, this was the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it just was between uh, between the French school, Yale, and so on, accommodating myself and really not knowing quite di- what direction I would take. Um, I, know, I knew it was... I definitely was certain it would be in the arts. I was studying history of art and modern literature, French and Spanish. Um, But I really wasn't clearer than that at the time. Uh, So stopped, dabbled in in painting myself and art. Um, Did not feel that I had the kind of originality that I saw in certain other artists, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And... um, moved to the West Coast in 68. So we were living in the uh, Berkeley, San Francisco area. Um, And uh, quickly realized that um, there was really good coffee around, something I had not been aware of before. And when you you moved there, um, you were married, right? And you had two two children and one on the Uh, way? uh, One one kid. Okay. And number two on the way. Okay. Um, and um, my closest friend, uh, who has since uh, left this earth, mm. uh, Juan Negrin, uh, was living in the area too and became 
connected quite early to the Wicho art um, back in the very early 70s. So two things happened. One, we discovered uh, that you could actually drink black coffee because before that I was having pounds of milk and so on. And that's what I, what I had, but you'd walk in. I remember walking into Pete's coffee in 1968, uh, seeing all these people standing on street corners in a suburb. This was not other stores around it. There was one little corner store and people holding uh, porcelain cups with long stems. And I don't remember whether the stem was white or, or black, but it, half was white and half was black. And you could really see these things. And they were all outside because it's an outdoor culture in Berkeley. Um, and uh, it was like 10 in the morning. And I said, well, what's going on? And I parked the car and walked into Pete's and saw a place I had never imagined existed with all these, uh, you know, with the beans showing in the window and uh, all roasted very dark uh, and uh, all these coffee makers that made you think that you were in an alchemical world, really. <laughs> and uh, it was exciting. Um, I tried Pete's. I did not like it. Personal taste. Uh, for me, it was very bitter and burned <laughs> tasting. Uh, but there were other cafes opening up following Pete's lead mm -hmm. uh, and with lighter roasts. Uh, and so I started getting coffee from that. And we had our French press, the Malheur, <laughs> the original Malheur, which is a great little machine. And every morning it became a ritual to press the coffee, you know, really fresh coffee that was from different countries or blends. Right. And uh and have your first sips and wake up to a great cup of coffee with some real flavor to it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No milk, no sugar, because it was delicious as it was. Um, and so that became a ritual. So just as a consumer. Yeah. Right? Um, and then uh, the other piece was that my friend got involved with the, uh, with the art of the Wicho. Uh, his father was living in Guadalajara and had exposed him to a few pieces. They were very small with yarn pressed into beeswax. But what interested my, my friend Juan, who was very much into religious studies, mythology and art as well, uh, was the fact that these were really symbolic and representing uh, either a folklore or a religion, but mm -hmm. talking about things not contemporary or mm -hmm. right? Um, not practical and right. materialistic. Uh, so he uh, really started to investigate that, started going into the Weichel territory uh, and um, and started me and uh, when he was going to a city called Tepic, which is the capital of the state of Nayarit, he started seeing uh, lots of stores selling the art mm. of yarn paintings right all over the place. Uh, but what was very noticeable was that the people making the art, the indigenous, which all were treated like, like really second rate or third rate citizens. End of story. Right. Uh, some stores even had the artists never come into the store, but wait on the corner outside, et cetera. Et cetera. I mean, it was absurd. Right. But, you know, it's uh, Mexico has its form of racism. Sure. As well. Right. Between mm -hmm. Mestizo and Indigenous. Um, 
And uh, so he saw some pieces that were far more remarkable than others and actually made it his thing to find the particular artist who's always signs the back or many of them did. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so he, he, he connected with about five of them who were really the ones making the original art that were then being replicated by craftspeople over and over again. Right. Yeah. So typically when you buy a yarn painting, even today, when you go to these places, you're buying tourist art and you're buying one copy among many. Right. Uh, but these people had real brilliance. Uh, and, um, and each one was dramatically different with a unique style. I mean, you could tell the difference between one artist and another, just like you could the difference between Picasso and Matisse. It was clear cut. Uh, they all had individual ways. And they were talking about what turned out to be a real religion. Um, so I could, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how far into detail you want yeah, me yeah. to go, but well, so, it's revelatory, right? Right, absolutely. So I, so I started exhibiting that art because mm -hmm. he would bring this stuff then back to the Berkeley area. Okay. And uh, we found a gallery, uh, Nova One, that it was called there in Berkeley. And we started exhibiting the art there on a regular basis. And I was in that, that, that uh, gallery mm -hmm. every day, explaining the mythologies, mm -hmm. the stories, mm -hmm. um, the symbolism of these particular paintings. Mm -hmm. um, and Juan would come back every six months with a new batch and now you saw artists actually transforming, right, starting right. to actually develop. And they were doing only single pieces, no copies, no more, you know, replications of anything. Strictly original work. So they were on the path to of an of an artist, individual right. artists, right? Yeah. So that became my first passion. But what were you doing to um, sustain your lifestyle and your wife's and yeah, I had a small trust fund. Okay. My grandparents had set up. Okay. It wasn't much, but it was enough, right? It was so, enough to get you through a couple of years of Berkeley, that's of right. living in Berkeley. Okay. And so the art was then truly a passion. It wasn't something you weren't exhibiting it and selling it and making some. Not I, no, the gallery was. Okay. But it was my passion to really get these artists. And with each six months where he brought more pieces the changes that these artists were going through mm -hmm. and the sophistication of their understanding mm -hmm. right, was extraordinary, mm -hmm. uh, really. Uh, and, uh, and so it became my passion to represent these artists as individual artists uh, worthy of just as much respect mm -hmm. as European or American artists, plain and right. simple. Right. It was the ultimate uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> California was more open to it than the East Coast, uh, for okay. sure. Uh, it, and it culminated in 74 uh, when I did, uh, in the winter of 74, when I was able to exhibit 40 masterworks. So they were the, the best pieces of each artist were kept and not sold in order to do a masterwork show mm -hmm. so that people could really understand how extraordinary this art was, right? Mm -hmm. And that went into the Los Angeles Municipal Art Museum, uh, right underneath the Hollywood sign. Yeah. Uh, really huge piece. They had just had uh, an Impressionist uh, exhibit before that, uh, like a year earlier, right? Okay. 
great Monet and Cezanne and so on. Um, and we came in there and we occupied half that huge building with 40 masterworks, some of which were eight feet in size. Amazing. Right? Mm-hmm. Four feet. Uh, and, uh, and I curated it, essentially. I was there from day one. And you'd have high school students coming in, or students actually teenagers with, with, their, with the, uh, their teachers or whatever, coming in to see this art and looking askance at all of this. And so I would jump in the beginning there and start, would you like me to explain the paintings? Mm-hmm. And uh, they did. So then I'd start to explain each one and we went through all 40 and you get to the end of the 40 an hour later. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, suddenly I've got 30, 40 people. Besides the kids, right, right. <laughs> all listening to this and clapping at the end, and so that starts off a career where I realized that I can actually speak and people. Yeah, listen. you're a storyteller, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and it was from there that we moved east because I wanted to exhibit the art there. Okay, uh, and perhaps go back to Yale. Okay. Right. A real possibility. We stopped in Boston because I had a very close friend there and we stayed there for a little while. Uh, drove uh, by car with two kids now, number three on the way. Okay. In 74, uh, February, March, and uh, brought coffee with me with a little French press uh, just for Lori and me and a little grinder. Uh, and I would stop at the uh, back in those days, it was Howard Johnson's that dotted the interstates all right. the way from West Coast to East Coast. Right. So we'd stop there and I would go to the men's room, grind the coffee. Right. <laughs> Always letting the, <laughs> the bathroom smell a lot better after I left. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then ordering hot water like for tea. And with that hot water, I could brew my coffee right there at the at the. Howard Johnson's. Uh And we would always have two or three people who were having breakfast there. Yeah. uh, Come up and say, what are you doing? And what's that? (laughs) So even before I ever got into coffee in any professional way, I was already explaining things. Uh, It's really quite funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So moved, got to Boston, quickly ran out of the coffee I brought with us. uh, And, um, and then Laurie and I were subjected to drinking god-awful <laughs> I mean, it really was. These were, you could go to some cheese shops uh, or the Italian section and find beans, roasted beans and bins. Uh, but in my opinion, they really were like wooden pellets painted brown and you were mm-hmm. drinking sawdust, mm-hmm. right? With hot water. No flavor. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so I also tried to start exhibiting the art. Right. And knocking on doors. Interestingly enough, when I went to Yale and I spoke to Vincent Scully, who was really well known internationally for what a great professor he was of, of art. And he really loved the art and wrote, you know, something for me to go to museums and elsewhere, including to Yale. He's there uh, calling it contemporary religious art. Oh. Right. Which is what I was right. looking for. Right. Right. Uh, and he didn't have to do that, <laughs> right? Uh, so, because I didn't really know him before that. Uh, I studied under him, but not w- knowing him. Right. Uh, and uh, I went to Harvard and uh, spoke to Rudolf Arnheim, who was teaching art. Uh, art and Perception was one of his books. 
uh, in Harvard and got another great recommendation as a contemporary about these being contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. uh, despite their theme and everything else, they saw the creativity uh, and, uh, and the fact that it was a living art as opposed to an art that was frozen into, you know, formulaic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. visual stuff, right? Um, but I could not get to the museums. The museums were much more academic in the sense that they had grids on their eyes. Okay. At Harvard, the director basically of the Fog Art Museum basically said, this is not, um, he, he said basically it was not um, real indigenous art. Hmm. He tackled it from that point. He didn't even want to consider that it was contemporary art, right? But it wasn't really indigenous uh, because it was not two-dimensional enough. And, and he was playing around, the artist was playing around with a little bit of three-dimension. And so, I mean, it was ludicrous. Right. And I ran into a lot of that. Um, the immediate categorization, the moment they saw the bright colors and the yarn and so on as something that goes in a kid's bedroom. Ah, uh, okay. Right? So they thought it was almost like Happy elementary colors, right, et cetera, yeah. tourist stuff. And that's that. So, you know, this doesn't belong here. It belongs in an archaeology museum. OK, they were saying that kind of thing. Right. Anthropology museum. rather. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was very frustrating. Uh, and uh, while we had a few exhibits, that was the reality that I was facing there. So it dawned on my wife, Lori, and myself that we could kind of uh, win on both sides if we opened up a cafe where we could exhibit the art as mm -hmm. well as now have uh, acquire great coffees mm -hmm. and get back to drinking good stuff again. <laughs> right. So yeah. we found uh, we found a great location in the middle of Harvard Square. Perfect. Which is surrounded on all sides by Harvard University, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And we became, uh, we opened it up. Lori came up with the name, The Coffee Connection. Mm -hmm. Of course, this was the time when the French Connection movie came out. Oh, okay, okay. Right? So and, and Starbucks wasn't around yet, right? No, they were, no. <clears throat> and they were not yet being run by Howard Schultz, who made Starbucks. Right. The, the, you know, uh, transformed Starbucks into this mm -hmm. massive empire, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That wouldn't happen for another 13, 14 years. Okay. Uh, you know, so uh, so we got the Harvard Square space. We opened it up in uh, April of 75. Okay. Uh, and we had been told numerous times by people, business people, everybody was saying, you're crazy, you're going to lose your shirt, et cetera. Because I, I was, you know, I mean, my attitude was, well, here, the, this this little story will tell you. Uh, I mean, it, we we did not have a roasting machine yet. We we started. We thought that it was a question of how stale the coffee was. So we started from that point of view, and we started uh, really looking for for roasters who could deliver us good quality coffees that we could sell. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we found this guy in New Hampshire, this company that. Uh, really was advertising gourmet coffees like mm -hmm. that. We were very mm -hmm. excited. Uh, he actually came to our apartment 
with three bags of green unroasted coffee and said, hey, this one's Colombian. This one is uh, Brazil. And then we have some from Central America. It doesn't matter which, it changes all the time. And if you want Jamaican Blue Mountain, I'll blend it this way. If you want Kenya, I'll blend it another way. There's really no truth to there being much differences in the coffee. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's when we realized, forget it. (laughs) So we started looking for a roaster, right? A machine that we could actually control the green coffee coming to us. Okay. And uh, but it did not arrive on time when we opened up in Harvard Square. Oh, Uh, so now I had to find roasted coffee temporarily. Uh, And uh, so everything pointed to uh, Zabar's in New York. Oh, yeah. All Zabar's. Right. Which at that time was way smaller than it is today. Right. It was a relatively small storefront with a really deep in the back mm-hmm. uh, and he was roasting his coffee selling mm. Jamaican real Jamaican Blue Mountain and a lot of other coffees very light roast which is what I really wanted I didn't mm-hmm. want the dark stuff uh, and uh, you know I called him up and I said I'd really like to buy coffee from you uh, what, until we get ours our machine and he said well no I don't really want to do that we'd be too expensive for you and uh, I've never wholesaled before. And I said to him, um, hey, I'd rather go broke selling great coffee than make a fortune selling garbage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, wow, I've never been told that before. And so he sold to us. Ooh. And so we were selling Zabar's coffee for the first mm-hmm. few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, in July, the coffee our roaster arrived simultaneous to the world news that Brazil had a killer frost. Mm. They were already 35 to 40% of the world's production. And the price of coffee started going through the roof. And Saul Zavar said to us, I can't sell you any more coffee. Mm-hmm. And we learned to roast, not knowing a thing, literally over a weekend. <laughs> wow. Right. And uh, so here we are roasting. God knows. I, I, I can't even think of what it might have tasted like back then, right? As we yeah. learned this like that. And it's not easy to roast, right? It's tricky. Yeah. Uh, and um, But we were an overnight sensation. So had your coffee supply from Zabar's run out and you were just starting to roast your yes, own? Yes, we had already and bought green coffee and, and sitting. So we were selling his coffee first. Okay. First two or three months until the middle of the summer. Uh, and then we had our roaster and we started doing it. Yeah, right. no, um, I'm just wondering, like, was the pressure on, though? Were you feeling this tremendous pressure to to get this roasting process just oh, right? We really were looking forward to that. But we were pretty happy with Sabars. I mean, they were they were putting out the best quality on these. Sure. Period. Without sure. a doubt. Right. And did you, were you making espressos and lattes or was it just? No, okay. uh, we were, but espresso was just not in our thoughts at all. Okay. Uh, and by the way, if you went to Pete's back then, you know, yeah. on the West Coast, they were serving drip coffee. They weren't okay. serving espresso either. Espresso was really not yet happening. That would be a revolution of the 80s. Oh, Okay. Right. Okay. So we did have an espresso machine, but it was a home machine, a Cremina made in Switzerland that was literally for the home, you know, a little bit bigger than a toaster. 
uh, something like that. Uh, and um, we'd be able to brew maybe six espressos before we ran out of water and had to stop everything and pour more in. Right. So that was, you know, hardly right. a thing. Um, what, what it was, was drip coffee that we were doing mm-hmm. in urns, right? So people could come right up to our window, mm-hmm. uh, to our counter, and uh, we could pour them coffee, add milk, and right off the, out the door. So very quick service. Yeah. But the innovation we did, and we were literally decades ahead of our time, we started serving French press of every coffee we had. My previous experience said to me, People don't know that there are real differences between all these different coffees. I need to prove it. I'm very into the British school and the French school gave me a lot of Euclidean geometry. Mm -hmm. So it's QED, the proof that you have to present. So everything for me is about proving it. Interesting. (laughs) Right. So Mm -hmm. we did French press and we could literally brew for you immediately uh, in a really elegant French press, uh, you know, any coffee we were selling retail that had been roasted first by Zabar's and then later by us. And where um, were you getting your French presses from? Uh, from a company called Lamal in, in New York, and they were mm-hmm. selling it. And in the 70s, we became one of the largest retailers of French press coffee makers in the USA. Hmm. Right. Uh, because we were so advanced, right, and serving the coffee. So, but but in any case, so we were serving that. And the other thing we did was, at those days, the coffee was loose. It wasn't pre-packaged like it is today, right? right. Uh, and but the our the the barrels, the top of the barrels, each one had a we put a roast stain on, okay. right, to emphasize the freshness as well. Um, you know, and that changed every twice a week as well. Um, and uh, that was an innovation too. Nobody was doing that. Nobody would do that for another decade or two. Hmm. Really, It's not until the late 80s that you're starting to see people actually put roast dates or sell individual cups of coffee in addition to an urn's worth, right? So hmm. we were what Howard Schultz was referring to as, you know, uh, the third room, the third yes. hall visit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before Starbucks or anybody else was doing that. Right. <clears throat> and, so, uh, George, yeah. was Lori working at the coffee shop back then, too? Yes, we were both there. OK. And then when did you hire your first employee? Uh, right away. OK. The enthusiasm was so incredible. I mean, literally, we were I mean, within the first three months, we were overwhelmed with customers coming in there. Huh. Right. We had the media coming in. Uh, channel four. I mean, there were only three channels back then, mm-hmm. CBS, ABC, and NBC. Right. Right? And the locals were coming and filming us, right? Uh, one of those news channels, you know, the six o'clock news or whatever, did a, a, a portrait of a, of a coffee connoisseur. Three months into it, I didn't know a thing, right? <laughs> but there it was in the six o'clock news, a full 10-minute presentation. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, uh, it was, that's how. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was such an innovation, mm-hmm. right? And and caught people at exactly the right time. People had clearly had all they could take of the garbage that they were being sold, right? And they were just ready and ripe for tasting something better. Right, <laughs> right. He stepped right into that. 
Um, so it was the age of curiosity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had that roast date and the bags that we sold, always we put the roast date on it too. Mm-hmm. So it became very important to our customers as to this shouldn't be more than five days old, right? Right, right. And that's what they wanted, freshness. <clears throat> so I would know. <clears throat> Sorry about that. That's okay. But I would know um, when people traveled across the, uh, to the other side, because I would get calls from other roasters or cafes rather saying, hey, one of your people went by because they wanted to know when we roasted the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you were you were teaching them to be smart consumers of coffee. We were educating them right yes. from the start, right? Yes. And giving them information that nobody thought to do. Right, right. Um, it, so that was the beginning. And so when did you open up your second uh, coffee connection? Almost immediately after the first. Um there was a place called Faneuil Hall. These oh, yeah. old buildings, long right. old buildings. And they really wanted to, uh, and it had just been there with nothing, right? Okay. I mean, it had been used as a marketplace long ago, back in the 19th century, and was fallow at the time. I mean, nothing was happening. And so this company took it over, the Rouse Company, as I remember, uh, and uh, wanted the the middle building to become a food hall, right? Um, but actually it was, no, they wanted to be a food marketplace, right? So the idea was to sell fresh vegetables, fresh meat, et cetera, fresh coffee, their retail. Mm-hmm. Um, they did allow five stores to open up that were actually serving food. Okay. convenience pizza, oysters, a little bit of stuff, but we weren't one of them. <clears throat> and, uh, but the beans were not selling, right? M- much. I mean, there were not that many people. This was new. Uh, many of the high rises, including 60 State Street, which was mm-hmm. the one closest mm-hmm. there, wasn't built yet. Okay. So you didn't have the kind of crowds you have now, right? Right, right. Uh, uh, but the 60 State Street was built sometime uh, two years later. Okay. Uh, one and two, Faneuil Hall Marketplace and we too realized that the money was in the drink, in the uh, food service. Yeah, yeah. So we transformed it into both retail and serving coffee. Okay. And we took off. But for a while, we were losing money, right? But. That's that's really and that became the cash cow. So that was was that still 75 or was that 76? That was 76, 77. And how were you managing growing the employee pool, finding a manager, yeah. that piece? What was that like for you? Uh we would get applicants and they'd okay. start working. They, you know, and so it wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult Not to find that people. difficult, no. Okay. Uh, we were really learning by the bootstraps. I mean, yeah. we had no idea about it, no business experience, nor did we think along those lines. Uh, I had somebody with me at those times who, who was setting up the accounting piece, uh, which I was not doing. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so essentially we... we where was I going with this? Um, we really... We were very, yeah, we were very successful with the people we were hiring because they were so enthused about what they were selling. Mm, mm-hmm. 
And we learned very quickly that the best salespeople were the ones who were so enthusiastic that they spread the excitement by contagion. Mm. It was contagious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the best you could ask for. Totally. You know, to, yeah. go, go ahead. ahead. I, I was just going to say to to this day, I always say like the barista has so much power over a customer's yeah. day, right? Because right. we attend, you know, for many people it might be the first person they speak to right. in the day and <laughs> they can totally start your day off on the right foot with positive energy. Or the so, wrong foot, right. Or the wrong foot, exactly. Right. Right. No, it's critical. A uh, person at the register needs to yes. be somebody who's gregarious, who loves to talk to people. Period. Right. So uh, were, were you thinking about those things as you were no. building the business or you just knew these things instinctually? Partially instinctively. And you just saw it. You saw, yeah. what, saw yeah. what you saw who was good at it and who wasn't. Right. <clears throat> right. Very clear. But of course, managing an increasingly complex uh, cafe I mean, we went from being 600 square feet in Harvard Square location to uh, seeing the building sold within a year uh, to a much bigger company that then told us, we're going to rip off your lease um, unless you take triple the space that you're taking. Mm. Right. So we had to go from 600 to 1,700 square feet. Okay. Literally overnight. And miraculously, I was able to get a loan, SBA loans. Right. Thank God for the SBA loans. Right. I mean, yeah. so we were able to get it on the basis of that, uh, you know, doing personal guarantees as well. I mean, everything was all the chips were on the table. Wow. So had the trust fund run out at that point? It was we, running out. I was okay. using that as well as the basis. Sure. And the profit. The right. Right. And we were not profitable in the beginning. Well, we were in the very beginning, but then when the freeze took place in Brazil, the price of coffee went through the roof uh, over the right. next two to three years. <clears throat> so we went selling. I have photographs of selling Hawaiian Kona for $2.99 a pound. Mm. Okay. Today, what, Kona goes for $30, $40 a mm -hmm. pound or something like that? Um, $2.99. That's cheap on any level. Mm -hmm. uh, it went in a year. By the by the first year and a half, we were at $10 a pound. Wow. Right? For the cheapest coffees. I right. Mean, $10 and going up. We lost our retail business at about $6 or $7 a pound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then finally things stabilized like two years into it okay. uh, and but prices were higher than than they had been right and we were able to stop having to increase our prices somewhere around eight ten dollars a pound uh, and people started coming back to us versus a trickle but quickly in droves right mm. many people were saying to us you know why were we going to pay high prices for cheap garbage right which is the alternative uh, we decided that we really had to afford what you're selling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they came back. Um, so it wasn't until like 1980 or so on that with this larger restaurant cafe, because we were mm -hmm. having to serve food and everything else and learning all of that upside down. I mean, it was mm -hmm. really 
that was a learning experience. It that's yeah, that's a big a big oh, shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and getting margins on all the foods, preparing them properly, yes. all the rest of it. So it wasn't until we we were doing waiting tables too. Mm-hmm. First thing I had to do was eliminate that, right, um, and have self serve. Oh, okay. And that was at both Faneuil Hall and Harvard Square? Faneuil Hall was always small. So okay. it was take out, take out, take out, okay. never an issue. But the restaurant cafe in Harvard Square, that really had to change. Right. Um, so that was in the early 80s that we turned it around and then it became quite profitable from okay. there on, right? As we learned more and more how to do things. And right. And to take that over. Not in terms of running it, but in terms of really analyzing the costs and so on. Right. Yes. Yeah. The right structure. Yeah. For it. Um, and changing our accounting systems as well so that we were getting uh, on time PL PLs, right? Which we yes. weren't at the beginning at all. I mean, the, we were so much into detail that it was taking months for us to even know what we were doing. Mm. So, anyway, different story. Right. Um, but so we kept the French press, we kept the roast dates and all of that. And we started growing cafes, uh, you know, about one every two years. It was okay. opportunistic growth. That's right. what it was. Yeah. Uh, I drive, uh, I, let's see, what was CC? So they were called CC1 was Harvard Square, CC2, mm-hmm. CC2 mm-hmm. was Spaniel Hall. Uh, CC3 was Newton Center. Ah. Uh, Okay. Very rich community, right? Outside of Boston, and I found this tiny hole in the walls, five or six hundred square feet, and we started selling beans and beverage there. Okay, um, and um, that took off. It took a while. Was uh, that takeout only? Also, uh, yes, there was no sit-down space yeah, at all. Yeah, this was yeah. Really, a lot of retail, coffee beans, equipment, all of that. You know, filters, anything you needed. Oh, and that was the other thing, because back then you didn't have the Internet or anything. So (laughs) whatever coffee machine I sold and I had an array of all kinds of different coffee makers like the French press, we sold right down all the spare parts to any machine we sold. Hmm. So if you were missing a screw, I had it. So we were like a hardware store. <laughs> for coffee for machines, a, for, for French press. Coffee, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everything, little little drawers, you name it, right? Amazing. I carried it, right? And so we had that at the uh, in Newton Center and all the other cafes that we uh-huh. did as well. So we were really a service, right? Yeah. But we were dying on the vine in Newton Center too for the first two years until – we put two tables outside. That's all that could fit on the sidewalk right? right and ran into Newton center politics uh, with the police saying, we can't put our tables out. Tables. There. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. But we found out that the landlord owned two feet of sidewalk. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's... And they'd come by and say, wait a minute, you need to move that chair three inches over. <laughs> it was insane. But those tables actually brought people to us. Yeah. They probably made people notice it was there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No clue. And we took off. And Newton Center became another real profit center. Right. And so bit by bit, Lexington. uh, Yeah. More town, more downtown stores as well. Uh, And then towards 2000. Uh, not 2000, 1990, yeah, not, uh, 1988, 89, we went on a Newberry Street. Okay. 
we really owned Boston. There really was no other specialty coffee roasting company there at all. Mm. Right. Um, so when Starbucks arrived, um, and we were very aware of them before that, which I can come back to. Yeah. But when they arrived in '94, already looking for real estate for sure yeah. coming in. You know, they proposed, they they contacted us and said, we'd like to buy Coffee Connection. Mm. By that time, we had we had 23 locations. And were you shocked by that or just you were no, kind of anticipating had, that offer? They had knocked on our door twice before. Okay. Um, going back about four years or five years. Um, and I'm never one, uh, I'm always wanting to know even if I don't want to sell, I want to know who that person is sure, and where they're coming from. Because if I'm not going to sell, they're going to be my competition. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so I always did the dance. Um, the, but the first time was very simple. I, I asked uh, Howard Schultz uh, directly, um, is this a real estate deal for you? And he was very honest. He said, yeah, it is. And I said, well, then I'm not interested. So mm. that was the first approach. Uh, the second approach was more ambiguous that way, and uh, so we created we created a PNL, a fictitious PNL. They knew that, right, in mm -hmm. advance, with different numbers and everything else, and then they had to value that that fictitious company um, and tell us how they did so, so that we could then calculate what they would offer us. <laughs> So what was Howard Schultz actually the person coming to meet with you and do the negotiation? Uh, he certainly contacted me in such. Yes. Yeah. 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 Was the one at that time I was dealing with. They were the first time. I don't even know if they were public or not. OK. OK. So the second time. The second time we did that, um, we said, no, wasn't yeah. worth it at all. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then the third time, that's when I got I had venture capital. Right. Because we knew they were about to descend on us full okay. last with far you more had, money than we ever dreamed of. Right. And you had taken in venture capital. You mean we got venture capital at that point in order to meet Starbucks head on and really be able to compete. With oh, them. so you were planning to continue to expand, basically. Yes. But now okay. we had to speed up the, the expansion. I see. Right. And you had not taken an investor until then. No, George? that's correct. Okay, okay. That's exactly right. So they come around in about 1994 with their third offer, but you're they made also- They offer December of 93. Okay. Where it was consumed, right? Okay. That's, that's the way it happened. Um, and that was really unexpected. We really didn't think they'd come a third time like that. Right, right. Um, and um, I made it very clear right at the outset that um, I wouldn't sell unless Coffee Connection remained. They had to the keep brand, the you brand mean? itself yeah. and, the, and, the, and the cafes. Okay. So we finally settled on they would keep two thirds of the cafes open. Okay. And right. were, were all the cafes except Harvard Square um, just selling coffee? No, there was a always beverage sit okay. down. So they'd be approximately a thousand, a thousand two hundred square feet. Okay. So there was tables, sit down, yeah. where you could get your French press or right. you know, your coffee. Uh, and by that time, we were clearly doing espresso. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, and retail. Okay. So 
It okay. was a full service place, much like many of the cafes that you see today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.